Extraordinary districts in extraordinary times. What is our goal? Our goal is not a nation of English majors. Our goal is a nation of readers. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangi Reed Marshall. We're from the Education Trust, a national education advocacy organization that works to ensure that all children get a high quality education, no matter what their background. Today, we're returning to our discussion about reading instruction. As I've mentioned in previous episodes, the Council of Chief State School Officers has asked its members to make reading instruction a key focus. This is the organization that represents state school superintendents and commissioners, so we think this is a very big deal. I've linked to the Council's report in the show notes so you can go read it for yourself, but at the core, it is asking all state school superintendents to organize their work and the work of their departments around improved reading instruction. It urges its members to commit to what it calls evidence-based practices and a commitment to provide high-quality instructional materials. This is a highly unusual move for this organization, and it's part of what has prompted us to plan this series of episodes about reading. If you go and read the CCSSO report, you'll see that it's very clear that the thinking is that the state superintendents and commissioners might be able to have their biggest effect by ensuring that schools and districts use high-quality instructional materials. Today, we've asked two expert people to talk specifically about this question of high-quality materials. The first is Carol Jago, a longtime English teacher and former president of the National Council of Teachers of English, as well as a prolific writer. She's been awarded several career awards, such as the International Literacy Association's Adolescent Literacy Thought Leader Award. That is a mouthful, I have to tell you. Our second guest, David Lieben, is also a longtime teacher who, with his wife Meredith, founded two schools and has been deeply involved with the development of state standards for reading as well as English language arts curricula for several states. I should say that Tangi is an expert in this topic in her own right, so I'm going to ask the first question and then try and stay out of her way as we all learn as much as possible. Mr. Lieben, the CCSSO has said that high-quality instructional materials are important. Can you talk about what they are, why they matter, and I just have to ask this, What are schools using now if they're not using high-quality instructional materials? Okay. First, I have to say something about uh, my co-protagonist here, Carol. A a very long time ago, right after the standards came out, when I was just cracking open the door to advanced old age, I was at some kind of um, large gathering about the standards. I don't remember where it was. I don't remember what it was. And... I met Carol and Carol was one of the speakers. And again, I don't know if she came before me or after me, but I confirmed this story with Meredith. Um, And Carol gets up and says, um, I want to tell you, remember, this was right after the standards. I want to tell you, I love these standards, but that doesn't mean that a lot of stupid things might not be done about with these standards. So 
Since then, I have referred to Carol as a prophet. <laughs> and the standards you're talking about are the Common Core state standards. Yes. Okay, so to get back to, to your very good question, um, first of all, materials have to align with the standards. That's fairly obvious. But it also they also have to align with, with the science of reading in all areas. Many people, unfortunately, when they see the science of reading, they're thinking only it's phonics. It's phonics or no phonics. That is decidedly part of the science of reading, and it's an extremely important part because related to a question later, um, another good question, if you don't get off to a good start and you're uphill from, from the beginning, that's problematic. But, there's, but there is a science of reading about how to develop vocabulary, both breadth of vocabulary and depth of vocabulary, meaning the many different senses that a word might have. There is a science of reading about how you grow knowledge. Um, and there's a science of reading. And, and it turns out there's a very close relationship in the science of reading to growing knowledge and growing vocabulary. Um, there is a science of reading about the, the quality of text, the features of text, the features of complex text that make it more difficult for a, for a reading, for a student to absorb and what they can do to, to deal with those features of a text. And even what habits can they inculcate? There's a whole field, an area of research in, in cognitive psychology called standard of coherence. Students who have, a, anybody really, who has a high standard of coherence expects to understand everything a text has to offer and works to get everything a text has to offer. That's a fairly well-established science at this point. There's probably 40 studies on that. And how do we inculcate that? So that's also a part of the science, science of reading. So it, it's far more than just phonics. And there's also science about the volume of reading, what the volume of reading does for the mind. Uh, Keith Stanovich, a, man, a, a cognitive scientist who got so upset with really the way the world of education was ignoring science and went to Canada and now actually has devoted his life to studying how irrational thought grows and spreads. So he's probably pretty busy now. Um, has, has written all about that in, in some really interesting texts. And any, anything I mentioned that if anybody wants to reach out to me, I'll be able to send them these, these studies or these, or these articles. So you have to have the rich, meaningful text and you have to have support for all students to read this text. And then you have to have a volume of related reading and that volume of related reading could be, could be at, at, different, at different levels. It, it doesn't all have to be that grade level level text. Also, reading connected to all this, reading can't be restricted by level. You, you can't have a system where um, students only read text at a predetermined level that they're at. First of all, as Tim Shannon has been talking about this for, I don't know, 145 years, there's no evidence for this. Other than in kindergarten, first grade, and maybe parts of second grade, there's no evidence that students reading only text at some kind of level do better than students who are reading text at a variety of levels, including grade level and even above. And you can look on Tim's blog, or I'd be glad to send a, a lot of information, a lot of studies su supporting that. And, and plus, it's, it's just a form of, of segregation almost. Um, I, I always remember Jack Tatum's quote, you've probably heard, um, leveled readers lead, lead to level, leveled reading leads to leveled lives. And it begins right away in kindergarten. A, a colleague that I worked with was in a kindergarten class in, in, a, in a school that was having a lot of problems. And 
she always remembers one of the one of the boys in one of the lower groups. And this is in kindergarten. Um, was very frustrated, and he gets up. I can't repeat exactly what he said. I get in trouble for repeating words like this generally. But he got up on top of the table and said, "I just want to be an F and G. I just want to be an F and G." Um, F being an abbreviation for a colloquialism that he had apparently absorbed despite his low reading level. Um, and kids, even in kindergarten, are aware of who's at what level. So you can't have a program like that, which is only level. And I think the best way to do all this is through knowledge-based programs that incorporate all genres, often using full and always using some full-length works and some smaller text at a variety of levels, again, connected to a, to a topic. That's a whole different world than leveled reading. And when I go around to high quality schools using one of these high quality materials, one of the things that is most stunning, because we then debrief with the teachers afterwards, and the teachers almost always say they never thought that their struggling readers would be this involved in what they're doing, often to the point of tears. And the reason is so obvious. Everybody is studying something together. Everybody is reading a rich text together. And then they're going off and they're doing research or they're doing other readings. And some of those other readings might be at different levels for kids who are reading low, at a lower level. But the bulk of the day is spent with a rich, complex text about a topic or a theme that is a grade level text. And so the discussion and the activities and whether there's artwork or whether there's drama or everything is organized around this topic. So the weakest readers, they're, they're playing in the ball game now. They're part of it. So they're gonna be more motivated than they ever were before with leveled reading programs. Do you have a sense of how, what percentage of schools are using leveled readers? Well, there's two parts to that answer. Um, you could be- and, and maybe Carol has a better uh, idea of that. I'm gonna talk about K to eight. The whole thing is a little different in nine to 12 and Carol might be able to talk about that better. Um, but in K to eight and especially K to five, there's basically three ways students are taught to read or not in this country. A basal program, um, a balanced literacy program like Fontes and Pinnell or Teachers College Unit of Study or one of these high quality um, new, new materials or teachers are creating their own out of, out of whole cloth, which is less common in K to five. And the percentages, there are now thousands of schools using these high quality materials. Five years ago, it was not even 1,000. Seven or eight years ago, it wasn't even close to 500. I think the number is going to grow. I think Student Achievement Partners Review of Units of Study might help a lot, um, if you're familiar with that. Um, and we're doing a review of a basil that will come out fairly soon. So I think the number of high quality materials is growing, but I don't know the exact percentage, but if you count let balanced literacy programs such as Fontes and Pinnell, teachers' college units of study, and, and schools that mimic that without purchasing the materials but do the same essential approach, that's still well more easily close to three-quarters of the country. So we have not, we have not turned a corner by, by any means. And for, unfortunately, COVID won't help because there was a real move to question balance of literacy, balanced literacy, 
before COVID came. And then, you know, everything just went down in, in this period of time. And probably the people who publish balanced literacy programs breathe a big sigh of relief that COVID came <laughs> now. Um, Stem the tide of the rushing waters. I want to ask you a question. You sort of hinted about the real power behind high quality instructional materials. And one of the things that we've heard a lot about is the importance of students being able to quote unquote read on grade level by third grade. Can you talk a little bit, and I'll have both uh, both you, David and Carol weigh in here. Can you both talk about why is third grade the North Star? I, I, I think that students who around about third grade become avid readers, in many ways, the world's their oyster. They're they're baked, which does not mean that high quality materials in fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade don't matter. But for those students who employ the reading that they've learned, the skills, the habits of mind, the, 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 the knowledge about how to choose books, the understanding about nonfiction not being being a rich, rich resource. It goes back to what David was saying about volume. They are learning so much. They are building vocabulary. They're building background knowledge with the result that as they keep reaching for more and more challenging books, they don't seem that challenging. They're used to overcoming those challenges. Again, just what what David said about, they know that books make sense. Whereas students who don't achieve that fluency, confidence, all of those other attributes of an, an avid reader, any book is a problem at whatever level. And that, those attitudes end up translating into NAEP's reading scores. I, I don't think I have anything to add to that, except you remember the standard of coherence that I mentioned? It's like they're developing the opposite of a standard of coherence. They can't reach coherence, so how can they ever develop a standard of coherence? So here's this construct, which is, I think, very powerful, um, and they don't, they don't have a chance of getting it. Uh, so I, that, other than that, I think Carol nailed it. I was going to ask about catching kids up, but you both talked about this whole idea, one of the coherence, but you both touched on knowledge building and vocabulary. And I just read a study recently that talked about how social studies improves elementary literacy. And in that article, they talked about it having the most effect on student outcomes for literacy development than even extra time in ELA classrooms. So how do you talk about and help leaders and and educators really understand the the need and the power of knowledge building and vocabulary development? The uh, the first thing we need to help teachers begin to do is to discard from their curriculum a lot of the things they think are catch-up activities. It's wasting time. Wasting time, like students are practicing, practicing, practicing for a day that never, never comes. Instead of starting with a real reason 
to understand a text because you're engaged, as David was describing, in, in a pursuit of a topic, in an inquiry into this subject that you want to know. So you 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 work, you 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 employ all of the, the the internal tools you've developed to make sense of of this text. And that's in, instead of artificial practicing and I mean I to me this is so tr particularly true in vocabulary the amount of time that is wasted in instruction on vocabulary lists makes me crazy because who have what students have the largest vocabulary your readers and not because they're keeping flashcards not <laughs> it's because they they not when they meet a word they know what to do to work to figure out what it might mean, prefix, suffix, and roots, uh, the, the context, all of those things. But also, because they read a lot and in a lot of different contexts in social studies, in science, in a novel they're reading, they meet that word in different contexts. And that's how you acquire the deep knowledge of a word. You know, I think about this as meeting words where they live rather than in an artificial 60 days to a more powerful vocabulary? Vocabulary, there's, there's research by two people named Neji and Herman, I think, all the way back to the mid or late 1980s. Proficient readers, it's really hard to do this research, are learning in the neighborhood of two to 3,000 words a year. You're not, you can't learn two or 3,000 words a year by vocabulary lessons. I'm not saying there aren't some good vocabulary lessons, especially for depth of vocabulary. Um, but you can't possibly learn um, that many words without a volume of reading. That's number one. Number two, context is king. If you read um, a sentence that says, and, for, and um, they looked outside and the, lot, the, the uh, hallways were infested by lobbyists. Well, you learn a lot about the meaning of the word infested, and you probably learn a great deal about the author's point of view. Boom, in two seconds, in one sentence. You can't match that kind of efficiency. So volume of reading doesn't get the attention it deserves. It, it's built into to these high quality materials. Um, one of the great problems is, especially with catching kids up, is it's hard to get kids to read at home these days. Um, and students who are behind, it's even harder to get them to read at home. So you want to spend the time analyzing rich, complex texts. And if you, if you have to have time where they read the text, in a four, especially if you're talking about a 47 minute to 53 minute traditional um, high school English period, you're really up against a wall. And, and Meredith and I are, and Sue Pimentel are working on something we call the Humanities Accelerator course, which is basically to eliminate the concept of intervention from the educational world, because it doesn't work. Why do we keep doing it? It doesn't work. Um, the data is overwhelming. It doesn't work. Um, instead of intervention, the ninth grade should be a three-period course along the lines of these high-quality materials where English and social studies are combined with whatever the state requires. You can learn a lot about the world, whatever the standard is. Um, and a third period, where, which is devoted to personalized learning and research. And in that third period with personalized learning and research, you embed the foundational skills work into for what those students need. I'm not saying that's not easy. You have, you have ninth graders who are not decoding. 
you have more ninth graders who are not fluent and embedding fluency and decoding into their work is not easy, but it's doable. It's doable, especially if you have time. You've got three periods now. And in that third period, you can take those kids and they'll do the same personalized learning, the same research, the same topic. So if you're talking about immigration, they might be studying Mexican-Americans. They might be studying Asian immigration. They might be studying their own family's immigration. And you will find texts in our days on at every level through things like Newzella and so forth. And you, you use those lower level texts to embed foundational skills and fluency instruction for those students. So when you walk into this room, you're not gonna know who's reading at a third grade level and who's reading at a 12th grade level. And they're all studying immigration for those six to eight weeks. So they're all studying the Mexican-American war, whatever it is. Um, it, it's essentially to replace the concept of intervention, which is a, a total failure. And that connects to, to volume of reading. Just one more thing connected to Tanji's original question with social studies. The high quality materials integrate social studies and science, a little bit more social studies. So for example, in one program, um, the eighth grade is studying World War I, they're all reading All Quiet on the Western Front. Not easy for a lot of our eighth graders, but it's certainly a quality piece of work. Uh, in a Western expansion unit in a fifth grade, another program is using Scott O'Dell, who's a wonderful children's author, Thunder on the Mountain. Um, not as popular as some of his other books, but he literally finished that book on his deathbed. So much that he want, wanted to be finished. It's, it's about the Nez Pierce. Um, the American Revolution, My Brother Sam is Dead, fiction. Um, in, in another program, they're studying love. <laughs> um, and I think also in the eighth grade. I wish I had that in the eighth grade. So they had the chemistry of eighth grade. Not, I'm not complaining about my eighth grade. Actually, I learned more than any other grade. Um, they're, they're reading scientific texts on the biochemistry of love, but they're also reading Midsummer Night's Dream. Um, and Civil War, Across Five Aprils, and, and in a course on government and economics and in learning about the American economic system, a book called Girl Who Owned the City, which is not high quality literature by any chance means, but it's the only book I've ever used in 20 years of teaching where, you know how there's always some kids who read, the, uh, I finished the book by Wednesday and they said, no, I'm sorry, Jose, we're not talking about chapter 13 now. We assign chapters one to four. Um, it's the only book where every kid in, in every school I taught in, urban, high poverty, um, independent schools, everybody read that book by the end of the week. Because why? It was about a plague that killed off everybody on the planet who'd passed puberty. So the only people left were under 12 and under, which you know, to kids is a fascinating topic. I wouldn't read that this year though. Um, or maybe not <laughs> Might even. be bad timing. Might <laughs> just be bad timing. We wanna stay away from that. <laughs> so these, these programs have, have integrated social studies and I don't know, I honestly don't know of a good social studies program at the K to five level for sure. And you also literacy blocks in, in elementary school in 90 minutes. There's just not a, a lot of, not a lot of time left. So if you integrate social studies and science into the ELA, I think you still get a better bang for your buck. Makes sense. How do we, you listed some really great books here. Um, My Brother Sam is Dead, All Quiet and Rest in Front, Thunder on the Mountain. A lot of conversation about the need to have texts that are high quality and also culturally and racially relevant. How do you 
make that case so that when students are reading something like My Brother Sam is Dead and, and sort of a bevy of books around American history and they're, they're, they're absent, how do we talk about that idea so that students are encountering high quality texts and we don't have to say high quality and or high quality but? Yeah, I think I, I, I think one thing, we're living in an amazing age of publishing more voices, own voices. So the, the cha- next level of challenge now is for teachers to read these books so that they know about them and can and can use them. I also think that uh, there is it is uh, there is terrific power in reading maybe some books of high literary value, but that have problematic issues. I'm thinking like Maniac mm-hmm. McGee that is... Uh, I love that book. And <laughs> I, so do I. <laughs> I love it. But, but I think that there, there are aspects of it, but we can, we can read these books with a 21st century lens and invite fifth graders to interrogate that text. They Kids love that kind of work. And so everything doesn't need to be replaced simply because there are problematic passages. We, I mean, we've all just listened to the Dr. Zeus controversy, and there are books that probably should be re- removed. But that it's it, there's also an educational deep value in helping students to develop the critical facilities to say, wait a minute, I don't, th- that that doesn't sound right to me. I don't know if you heard uh, Dave Pilkey's Scholastic just pulled one of his uh, Dogman books or his Captain Underpants, I forget, what, what one of them because uh, it was insensitive uh, to Asian Americans. And it really was, I, I saw pictures, uh, uh, screencasts of it. Uh, that's progress for for all of us, and and I think about uh, Dr. Debbie Reese, who keeps an amazing blog, looking through the lens of Indigenous peoples, and I have learned so much from looking through her eyes, and that's what I would wish for all teachers, so so that we we don't need to beat ourselves up for what we did in the past. I mean, it, it, when you know better, you do better. And you just my yeah, you just keep trying to, to 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 use that to keep you going and say, wait, maybe we needed a, a different text, or maybe we need to to really put a microscope and have a Socratic seminar about this single passage. Yeah. What was the name that you said, Carol, towards the end? Oh, Dr. Debbie Reese. Debbie Reese, okay. And she keeps an amazing, amazing blog that where she reviews a whole lot of books uh, through uh, Native Nations' point of point of view. That makes total sense because that erasure is so real, um, you know. And when you're reading a book like All Quiet on the Western Front, you really have to problematize that content, and you really have to problematize the issues that are being brought to the bear for students to consume as one rightfully true and then singular in its dimensionality and singular in its perspective. David, I want to go back to something you you sort of hinted on. Um, You talked about the three blocks in high school 
And one of the blocks you talked about was personalized learning. And um, thinking about the work that we we did on that, you know, with the personalized learning you talked about, can you talk more about how the use of personalized learning can be a tool coming up in like maybe now and then maybe in the summer and then maybe coming for the fall as a real viable mechanism to help district leaders, state leaders, building leaders really make sense about how to meet students so that we're not chasing behind on this idea of, you know, kids being so behind and, and them falling sort of off the planet academically. So how can we understand personalized learning, one, through an equity lens, and then two, as a tool to really help support students? Okay. That's really like two questions at once, or maybe more. Yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> um, but I'll, I'll start, and then I think Carol can can add a lot. First of all, as we as as, as in the report that you were a huge part of, the personalized learning has to fit with the, with what we know from the science of how the human mind learns to read and grows as a reader. If it conflicts with that, it's it's not going to be helpful. If it isolates some students it's not gonna be helpful. And in fact, it could be harmful. Um, so it has to find a way, whether through technology or not, to meet students' needs without isolating them, without segregating them, without demeaning them, without putting them on a computer by themselves for X number of, of hours a day. And the best way to avoid that is to make sure that it's part of what of the of what pe what the class is learning what's the query what what's the intellectual pursuit why why are we learning about world war 1 and what does it tell us about the world about this country and about war and about people if personalized learning doesn't fit with that it's not going to work it's somewhat related to technology um, we don't have any evidence at this point we do have evidence for foundational skills that there are tech programs that can help with decoding and, and to some extent foundational skills, but zilch with comprehension. With comprehension, we're finding that, and, and some studies, they actually found that the, the control groups that were using the tech programs did better than the program than, than the, than the, than the, than the treatment groups that were using the technology. The only way to explain that is that the technology turned the kids off or turned the teachers off or turned them both off. So we have to be very respectful of the science of reading. We have to be respectful of not segregating and isolating students. And then I think that personalized learning could really be powerful. So take the example of my three, of our three hour course. Um, and in that third block is a personalized learning block. Technology would be really helpful in putting together the materials that those students who are behind can read, integrating the foundational support into those texts that the students are, are reading, and also giving them a variety of ways that they can present their results. It doesn't have to be, certainly doesn't have to be just questions and answers. It could be dramatizations. It could be um, artwork. It, it could be speeches. There's a whole world that might fit with that child's what they want to learn about and how they want to present their learning to the class. Or it could be a competitive game. Tanji, actually, you were the first one who freed me to say this. You know, some kids like, like competition, um, but it's become a dirty word in elementary school. That's a loss. Um, 
And so they could express their learning in creating a game show or something. So I think that there's ways to do personalized learning as long as it doesn't segregate kids and as long as it's connected to what the class as an intellectual community is, is pursuing. Um, if it tries to, and if it tries to isolate skills by giving an assessment and saying, well, you had trouble with, with questions on standard three, the interaction standard. So we're gonna give you five dry, meaningless texts um, that are really good for learning about the interaction standard and go off into the corner and practice that. And that's a great fear, especially after COVID because, oh, we gave them an assessment and they did really poorly on standard three and standard five, the structure standard. We have to have a whole bunch of texts on structure, which of course you all know is not just doesn't work, but it's harmful because it destroys, it, talk about a standard of coherence, talk about a love of reading. You couldn't design a better way to destroy it than that. And that's a real danger with what might happen with personalized learning. But I think the, pro, the you know, our work, which I'm um, reading as liberation, that as I said, Tanji was a big part of, and Meredith and Sue, who I refer to as the big girls, were the, were the, were the um, primary writers. I think they addressed that pretty well. I think too, the, the, the real power of personalized learning is um, engagement, desire. When kids want to know something, they work harder at it. They, they will learn more, try more, stretch, push themselves. The challenge at the other end is making sure that there's rigor in, involved because you could be working, on, let's say, the base of the most rigorous. I, I'm telling a story on myself here. 10th grade, we're reading Homer's Odyssey, and I'm looking for, you know, alternative ways for students to demonstrate their, their comprehension, their understanding, their learning. And then I'm watching this group of, uh, of 10th graders putting on a puppet show. And I'm going, hmm, Carol, mm, I don't know. I mean, where you know their time has gone into the beautiful costumes and the big uh, uh, puppet theater and not really with the Odyssey. So, I mean, that's a moment of learning for me as, a, as an instructor to say, hmm, I need to think about this and think about how I set up the parameters for this personalized learning, for this product. Uh, but if we never open the door to other possibilities of students demonstrating their understanding, I think we're taking a lot of the joy out of the classroom. And without that, that joy, school is just something that other people do to kids. And unfortunately, I think there's been a lot of that going around. <laughs> and, and the fear is that ca the, the, the catch-up mentality will just jet propel that. I agree. Yeah, we've been, Karen and I have been musing about that a lot, about how we don't want bad things to happen, but we are in grave fear that it absolutely will happen. Uh, last week... Um, Tim Shanahan brought up the need to consider writing as a critical tool for helping students learn how to read. And I know, Carol, writing is very dear to you. You spend a lot of time instructing leaders and teachers and really talking critically about the relationship between reading and writing. Can you talk about how reading can be a really important tool as leaders in school and classroom leaders, teachers and building leaders, really think about how they design learning for this coming fall. In writing. In writing, I, yep. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. in writing. I really think that writing is, is a, a, a method for 
to engage with your reading. I mean, reading is something that, that you know happens quietly, silently in in your head. Do you, and a teacher has a limited number of ways to learn about what's going on inside a young reader's head. So on the one hand, it's a way for the, the reader, the student, to engage in a different way, to, to reflect. I mean, I, I can think of myself as a writer, how often I understand what I'm thinking better after putting pen to paper or fingers to keyboard. At the same time, the result of my having expressed something on a piece of paper, if I'm a student, is a window for teachers into my processes of, of comprehension. So it's really, to, to my mind, a win-win circumstance, this integration of, of reading and writing. I'm going to say something quick that might piss off thousands of people. Um, <laughs> Shocker. I'm so surprised that that might happen. Um, I, 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 you know, I, I was an economics and psychology major at the University of Madison, Wisconsin and Madison, shortly after the Civil War. And um, I didn't want to go into economics. It was all about math. I didn't want to go into psychology at that time. This is how old I am. It was all about rats. Um, I wasn't really interested in rats, and I didn't think I had the math to, to, to be an economist. And nobody was, nobody was supporting me. So I was, I'm going to become a teacher. Um, I kind of like kids, so I've become a teacher. Um, I get a job in a rural school, um, 22 miles southwest of, of Madison, Wisconsin. And, uh, you know, I had to teach some writing. They actually, I did learn, I, I learned some things about teaching reading. They were all wrong, but at least they gave me something to do. Um, but they didn't even talk about writing. I had no idea what to do about writing. So I'm going to give a writing assignment. Well, how do I judge the writing assignment? What, what, what's high quality? Um, what I would write? Is that the way to do it? So what I would do is I would I would just take the kid who I knew was the best writer in the class. And that was my rubric. That was my template. Um, it's just an attestment to we're, we get we're, we have a lot of problems because ourselves and our teachers as teachers did not learn what we needed to learn in 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 pre-service or graduate training of education. And writing was just completely absent from the curriculum at the University of Wisconsin in Madison in the 19, mid-1970s, no, or early 1970s. Yeah. So then what do we do? How do we help? Is this a teacher ed prep situation? Is this an in-service situation? We know that um, anecdotally, and what we've been seeing across a lot of reporting lately, that students are having low turning in of assignments and things of that nature. So how do we then use writing as a way to structure more formalized learning coming the fall if people are trying to weigh out ways to assess student knowledge and understanding? I think it, it, it's a, a moment in, I mean, uh, at least uh, from the National Writing Project has said said this on a webinar I was participating in, that it really is a moment for no-stakes writing. Uh, using writing, again, as a vehicle to process what you're experiencing, helping with metacognition, like helping students think about themselves as learners at this moment in time. And it's not about product, but it's about expressing to the best of my ability what it what my experience has been, so that then the teacher can craft 
instruction in response to that. You know, uh, we, we need to think about feedback on student writing so differently. The, the, you know, I, I, I too, when I started teaching, it was just assign and assess. That, yeah, that me was too. all about, that's what writing instruction is. And I think the National Writing Project has done more than any other group to try to, to move the needle forward. But when you think about the, the impact, it's not as great as it needs to be. And it isn't reaching teachers in schools where the need is the greatest. And that's pretty terrifying. Yeah, I agree with that. Karen, I've asked a whole lot of questions here. Is there something I, that I've missed that you can uh, sort of say, hey, I think we should talk about this next? So uh, I'm, I'm just sort of absorbing and listening. And it's so interesting, this whole question of um, uh, writing instruction, I, I find very personal because I had an ambition to be a writer as a child and I swear to you, almost every teacher I ever had said something along the lines of, you have good ideas, but you don't know how to write. None of them ever sat down and taught me how to write because I think they didn't know how to teach how to write, right? I mean, so um, it was in college when I took a rhetoric class, kind of classical rhetoric, and I went, oh, you mean people have been studying this stuff for a long time? There are things I could learn. It's not just an innate, uh, you know, you're either Shakespeare or you're, uh, you're not, or, or you're nothing, right? You, you know, and you can't learn to be Shakespeare, but you can learn to be Karen Chenoweth. You know, like I'm not a brilliant writer, but I can write at this point. So, you know, that I think is so um, it. That, that hits personally uh, to me. And I think it must hit personally to a lot of teachers who, like, I'd like to help kids learn how to write, but they themselves may not have learned sort of the structures and the, and the uh, way to not just write themselves, but teach others how to write. I think there's probably something like math phobia going on. The teachers actually feel insecure about themselves as writing, so you avoid it. But I would say, in, in all of my experience, I have met a lot of good readers as teenagers who are terrible writers because they don't really want to spend the time. They just want to get on and read the next book. But I've never met a really accomplished teenage writer who wasn't a reader. Because there are so many things about syntax, about balance, about voice, about rhythm, about everything having to do with writing that you internalize as a reader. And there'll never be enough mini lessons, maxi lessons, uh, days in the school year to identify all of them and teach a lesson on them. So again, I think, you know, let's say the use of mentor text or is style imitation, all these things can be tool, effective tools in helping students to kind of begin to read like a writer. One thing I, I wondered if, and I, this might be a little off topic, but when, uh, when David, when you said 
as a teacher, you sort of picked out the best writer and then you just kind of compared, right? So there's a uh, an educator in the UK, Daisy Christodoulou, who's, kind, who's working on that as a general scheme. And her idea is comparative writing assessment, comparative assessment. And the idea being, if someone walks into a room and you say, well, I'm not sure how tall they are. They're somewhere between 5'5 five, five and 6 foot. But if someone walks in the room who you know is 6 foot, and then another person walks in the room, you can say, well, taller or shorter. And so it's it actually builds on exactly your uh, the, the method you stumbled upon, right? Um, and it, only it uses computers to actually... Uh, massively help teachers in making those comparative judgments. I wondered if you had heard of that. Comparative judgment. I'll I'll put them I'll put it in the show notes for everybody. In fact, uh, I was just thinking I have to put student achievement partners in the show notes. I have to put the National Writing Project in the show notes. Um, standard of coherence, which is something I um I w- was not aware of, but it sounds really interesting, and I will go look it up and try and figure out what to put in the show notes <laughs> around the, around that. Anyway, these are kind of random thoughts, but but they're they're generated by this really interesting conversation around um, reading and writing and how how school systems are grappling with how to teach. But we started with the CCSSO, right? We started with this idea that um, this is something that state superintendents can affect. Are you thinking that that's a good, you know, that that state superintendents can actually have a real effect on high quality materials, or is that so? Are we still so localized and decentralized that state superintendents may not be able to? Again, I think there's always a push from the top and a push from from the bottom. A good leader brings everybody along with them. But let's be honest, uh, America's teachers in many ways continue to be independent contractors and, you know, and uh, ultimately do what they want in so many ways. I mean, the, the assessments brought some level uh, of consistency because everybody was worried about that, that accountability factor. But day to day, teachers make a whole lot of choices, some of which are idiosyncratic. And with better leadership, like inspirational leadership, instead of I'm going to do some draconian thing to you if you don't do what I say. You know, it's just like with, with, with students. You, you can threaten or you can inspire them to, to want to become a literate person. And that, I think, is, is really our goal. I think that some teachers are far more inspirational than others, of course. Um, I think that the, the high-quality materials, which, frankly, I don't think are as strong in writing as they are in reading, but they're, but they're way stronger than just, than just nothing. Um, and when you, I think it might be difficult in terms of superintendents to, I'm not, let me put it another way, I think it would help 
with writing, reading, and everything else, if a high quality material is adopted, which is what the superintendents and the whole CCSSO thing are, are, are trying to do, then you get it into, the, into a district. And what Carol says is right. You know, it's, it's, it's almost the same problem why, why we have with COVID. Everybody does whatever the hell they want. Um, and, and some people still believe in science and some people would rather that we walk this thing back to the Middle Ages. Um, and that's part, of, that's part of the nature of our country. And even if you have a high quality material, um, I don't think anything can possibly work if a teacher doesn't understand it and doesn't believe in it. Um, that's, just, that's just reality. But you're more likely to get positive outcomes. It's not guaranteed, but you're more likely to get positive outcomes if, if the high quality material is adopted and used. And I think that's true for two reasons. It's like, um, it's like um, Carol said, push from the bottom and, and push down from, push up from the bottom and down from the top. So if you have a more high quality program, teachers are more likely to invest in it and, and believe in it because they are way more interesting than what we've had before. Um, which has mostly been units of study, which has mostly been balanced literacy and, and basils. So that's the, that's the bottom up kind of pushing. The top down is, you know, if you're, if you're an urban school district or even a small district, high quality materials and low quality materials cost millions of dollars. So there's a certain motivation by administrators to, to try to do a little bit of the top down because we just spent, we met millions of dollars, guys. And we got it for seven years because we're a Christian country, seven years before we pick out our next text. Um, so, you know, it's, it's up and, and, and it's down. And the other thing about the high quality materials, I had a really interesting, uh, I don't know why I was doing this research. It was, this was even before the standards. It, it was, and it was with George Bush one, I think. No, George Bush two. Um, and they wanted to do a national study comparing, um, teachers who were certified with traditional certification and teachers were certified with a new you know, new, new forms like, like, um, and so I was working with, um, an organization in Vermont and they, we got the contract to make a rubric for evaluating teachers over in a, in a two session period to come to some, to have a tool to evaluate how these teachers are doing other than standardized test scores from the two different groups, the traditional certification and the other. And I went to, um, I went for the first time ever, I drove on my own to deep, deep, deep Georgia, um, where I'd never been. And I didn't have Meredith to protect me. But anyway, it was really, I went there to this school and, and they had the two teachers. Supposedly they're not supposed to tell you who's, who's traditionally certified and who's clear. You know, obviously all the black teachers were traditionally certified, all the young white teachers were from some alternative program. It wasn't to, you weren't supposed to know that, but anyway, so it was actually one of the young white teachers. I observe her and she's teaching from a basil. The questions aren't great and she's flat and the kids are flat. And the next day I come back again and apparently she'd finished the lesson, but she needed to do reading because there was this old white guy who was coming and sitting in the back of the room. She didn't know who the hell she was. And she was actually told she couldn't talk to him. So she was making up the questions on her own and not using the basil. So the kids were not at the desks, but they were actually, in, this was fifth grade. They were in front, cross-legged in a circle, um, and she was making up the questions. And they were 10 times better, and she was more animated than she was doing the basil. And then she comes up to me at the end, young, new teacher, 
She knew she wasn't supposed to talk to me. She says, please, can I ask you, what did you think? So I, what am I going to do? I mean, I was told I couldn't talk to the teacher. There may be some other David Lieben somewhere who would say, sorry, I can't talk to you. But this David Lieben wasn't going to do that. Um, maybe it's David Lieben. But at any rate, <laughs> yes. So I said, you were totally, the, the, today's lesson was great. The questions were good. You were animated. The kids were animated. Yesterday was completely flat. Why? And she stops and she says, I don't know. I, and then she said, I guess when I use the basil, I stop thinking. And that's the point. Um, the new high quality programs, you can't do them without thinking. It's impossible. Um, and you've got to get that balance. You, you can't just leave everything to teachers, but you've got to give them something that they can work with, that they have to think to do. And you cannot do that with any of these. Oh, David, that that's just brilliant. And it really goes to an earlier question of Tangi's about what is this? Is it about pre-service? Is it a, a professional development issue? As long as teachers continue thinking and wanting to do more and to do better, they're going to be fine because they're they're constantly hungry. And, and every day, every student, every new set of, of circumstances like the pandemic uh, offers new opportunities to continue to learn and grow. If you're the kind, if you, if you have a teacher for whom that's kind of exciting, this, we will make progress. If a teacher is just hoping for the job to be the same, Every day, every every season, it, it, um, then it's really hard. High quality professional development or no to help that teacher to grow because you got to be thinking. If you're not thinking, you're not going to make the changes that that are required live, <laughs> and teaching is live. So what? I mean, if I'm a teacher, if I'm a principal, if I'm a superintendent, like name some high quality uh, materials. Like what do you like? What are what are some of the brand names that that they can go to and and know that the two of you, the three of you say are high quality materials? You want me to start, Carol? Um, I'm much more familiar with K-8 although I, I have done some work with some of the new high school programs. Um, these, are the, these are the programs that have a orbit around a topic, as I described, that have all been um, come out since the standards. Um, Great Minds, Wit and Wisdom, and the woman who runs it, by the way, was one of our teachers from Meredith and Mine Old School, and EL Educate. And these, these programs are all very different. They like have different personalities. They're aligned with the standards. They're aligned with the science of reading for the most part, but they are really different. Um, written, and that means the district has to take a look at that and match it up with, with their district philosophy, with their district history, with their resources, because some are much easier to learn than others. Um, so Wit and Wisdom from Great Minds, EL Education um, from um, EL Learning, American Reading Company, the only American reading company, um, which is very, very different. But, yeah, but really, really good on volume of reading and research. Volume of reading, research, and ARC is especially good with perspectives and a wide range of authors across race. Yeah, they, they are great with that. They were, they were ahead they of their are, time. And they're, yeah, they're all, they are really so. into fun. 
I mean, like, there's a curriculum yeah. where when I'm walking in the hall in one of these schools, there's these two kindergarten kids, and they're looking at some, at some creepy crawling on the floor, on the wall, and they're about to go to blows over whether it's an arachnid or an insect. Um, fortunately, <laughs> I can break it up before they started railing on each other, but that's the kind of <laughs> curriculum you want. Um, so they're very good on that. But they involve some serious learning by the teacher, for sure. And their foundational skills is solid, but, but different. But it's beautiful. But ARC is beautiful. Written Wisdom is beautiful. EL is beautiful. They're all very different. Core knowledge is very different. Um, and it has a history that you're all probably familiar with of being too, too Eurocentric, which they, they have remedied to some, to some extent. But nevertheless, it's aligned with the standards and it's aligned with the science of reading. But it's got a bit of an uphill battle now, more, more than before. And it had a battle, it had an uphill battle. Well, the, the, the slope just changed. Um, um, yeah. And why am I forgetting the fifth one? I have to ask about bookworms, just which changed, I featured yeah. in. Bookworms, thank you. Okay. That's who I'm missing. Bookworms, which has, by the way, some of the best data in some very low-performing, high-poverty mm-hmm. districts very quickly. Why? Because it's easier to learn. But you still have to think if, to do if it. If anybody wants to hear about bookworms, listen to uh, in season two the mm-hmm. uh, the episode on Seaford, Delaware, which is one of the, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I like all these programs. Delaware. I really mm-hmm. like all these programs, and except bookworms, I've worked with all of them intimately o- over the course of, of years. Um, full disclosure. Um, I get paid. I've gotten paid to help art. I've gotten paid to help wit and wisdom. I've gotten paid to help core knowledge. I got paid by student achievement partners to help EL. And I spent more time on EL than all four of the others combined. Um, because okay, I was, so you have a conflict of interest and I appreciate <laughs> that you stated. And I'll, I'll and I want to say that too, that, you know, full disclosure, yeah. I'm an author on the Houghton Mifflin Harcourt into literature series. Mm-hmm. And so I, I put my name to it. I think that the that mm-hmm. the selections that they put together are really powerful. And why, you know, I think the the big question in secondary is why do teachers need somebody else to choose these selections and to put them together into tech sets? Because remember, secondary teachers are meeting 180, 200 kids a kids day. They don't have time mm-hmm. for for choosing wisely and examining. The other thing that I think is important to to recognize is whatever materials you talk about in terms of high school English, most teachers continue to teach novels. Yes, they do. And so Mm -hmm. what we need to be talking about in terms of high quality materials are those choices that teachers are are making Mm -hmm. and how, as I said before, I don't think it's a matter simply of replacing things with something else, but rather making sure that we bring a different lens. Student Achievement Partners, for example, brought in uh, the Disrupt Text uh, individuals, Julia Torres, uh, Lorena Harman, Dr. Kim Parker, uh, Tricia Varbia, to talk about their approach, um, both to teaching tradition, the traditional canon of text, but also how to bring in new text. My concern is when we, with some of the books that we have decided, okay, oh, kids will really love this, but guess what we do? We teach it the same way we would teach Beowulf. And we do. 
quizzes, mm -hmm. test at the end. We destroy it. So we take an Angie Thomas novel, Hate You Give, and we we ruin it by talking about foreshadowing and symbolism. Right. And I think that it's a mis it, it, it's well-intentioned. Again, one, David, one of those things that educators, we just have this penchant for taking a good idea and turning it into something stupid. Killing it. And we mm -hmm. belong <laughs> in our classroom in book clubs, in reader circles, in literature circles. Let kids talk about them, but they don't... They, one, students don't need us to help them every sentence along the way, the way they do with maybe with Shakespeare and other texts. But two, because we take the joy out of reading. We take, we, we take the natural momentum. So many of those books are meant to be gobbled up. That's how they're, they're, that's how they're understood or comprehended best. And when we parse it out, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, we are making a mash of, uh, of, of the reading experience. Again, yeah, what is our goal? Our goal is not a nation of English majors. Our goal is a nation of readers. And to keep that goal, readers and writers, to keep that goal in mind with any kind of instructional materials that we, we choose in secondary. Just one quick comment based on what Carol so eloquently said, I told you she was a prophet, um, that the um, essentially you have people who would not become English teachers if they didn't like, if they didn't like literature and novels. So you have people coming into education with essentially the, the domain of literature and you have people coming into education um, with the responsibility to teach kindergarten and first grade children of all kinds how to read. And they're both unprepared. It's like a it's like I was gonna, I was going to say something that I couldn't say, but it was it's it's like both ends of the spectrum are seriously problematic. That's and that kind of sums it up. And so this has been a fabulous conversation. I've enjoyed it. I've learned a lot. I'm going to be putting an awful lot into the show notes. A lot of links to a lot of different things. So. Um, someone who is listening and kind of go, I, I wonder, you know, I never heard of these programs. I never, I will put links in for all of them. And I really appreciate this. Um, thank you so much. That wraps up this episode of Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times, a podcast of the Ed Education Trust. I have provided links in the show notes if you're interested in learning more about the work of Carol Jago and David Lieben, as well as the CCSSO report and the National Reading Report and lots of other things that were mentioned as part of this conversation. This is the fourth of a series of conversations we're having about reading instruction this spring. The first was a conversation with reading researcher Alfred Tatum trying to assess the state of reading in the nation. The second was a discussion of a series of legal cases attempting to establish children's right to learn to read. The third was with Timothy Shanahan and Donald Joseph Bolger about the science of reading. Another resource is the second season of Extraordinary Districts, which I mentioned in this, uh, in this episode, which profiles three districts and talks a lot about the reading instruction they're doing. 
I hope at the end of our series, all our listeners will have a better understanding of why reading is such a hot topic and some of the ways educators can move forward so that all our children not only learn to read, but learn to be engaged citizens who help build and shape democracy. We've got another great episode coming up next week, so stay tuned. I want to thank everyone at EdTrust whose work supports this podcast and the Wallace Foundation, which provides financial support. Mike Patillo of Tonal Park records and edits the podcast and composed its theme music. This is Karen Chenoweth. And this is Tangie Reed Marshall. See you next time. <laughs>